I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I know how to French braid my own hair. Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I fully thought you were going to say French kiss. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Everyone I knows did. that. <laughs> I've never done it. Never will. Oh, my God. Okay. Do you know about this, Melissa? <laughs> oh, my God. Melissa doesn't know about your best prank ever. My best prank of all time where I convinced two of my friends that I'm not friends with anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Had never that I had never kissed with tongue. Oh my god! Maybe that's maybe that's why what, the falling that's out what pushed happened. them away. Well, yeah. I didn't have a falling out with Rachel. We just sort of drifted apart, right? But yeah, wow, that's wild. Oh my god! Yeah, it was maybe really that's, good. Maybe that's why I got I like really convinced them I'd never done it, and they were like giving me advice on how to kiss with tongue. <laughs> this was just you're just like I just TV kiss. Yeah, yeah, that she just TV kissed because she didn't she didn't like tongue. Then nobody had ever tried it with me. And then part of the <laughs> prank, part of the prank was that we I was going to be her first tongue kiss. And then we kissed on the channel. Yeah, we made out yeah. on the channel. And then briefly. And then it was, was their tongue. Yeah, because yeah, it was so meant, gross. Because it was meant so to gross. show this person that this was Allison's first tongue kiss. And then we were like, psych, it was not her first tongue kiss, you idiot. I just think of y'all as like siblings and it just seems very incestuous. It was, oh, me. It was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. I'm so disgusted. We it hated was, it. Yeah, it was horrible. It was for it was for the the It was clickbait. It was clickbait, but it was also it wasn't even clickbait because it was for the pure enjoyment. Oh, oh and then we took that video of us doing it to the guy and we took a video of us showing that video to the girl we were pranking so she had the reaction these people are they were at the place where you ignored me correct i didn't mean to ignore <laughs> you welcome to just between us a variety show filled with heartfelt advice Ridiculous game. and brutal honesty this is your first time listening this is so chaotic this is absolute friggin' chaos Okay, after dragging me over the coals, <laughs> we have a great episode for everyone today. Very excited. We're going to be talking to Alec Karaketsanis all about media literacy and propaganda, And it's just a really good conversation. It's a really wonderful conversation about the criminal justice system in America and, and how terrible it is. Yeah, but Allison's a big fan, so it's a really enjoyable interview. I was like so nervous the whole time. <laughs> I was like, I hope he thinks these are good questions. <laughs> if you're listening, Alec, were they? Okay, right then. <laughs> and later, we're going to be discussing death. <laughs> and how I long for the sweet release of it. Well, just like our our individual relationships. Death, towards- pro or con? Pro. <laughs> Decidedly pro. <laughs> Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Alec Karakatsanis, a former public defender and the founder of the Civil Rights Corps, an organization designed to advocate for racial justice and bring systemic civil rights cases on behalf of impoverished people. Hello. Hi, how are you? Oh, good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. It's great to be here. I couldn't believe you agreed to do this. I was very excited Um, (laughs) because I follow you on Twitter and I think you do such a great job of identifying how the media misleads us. 
So can you sort of speak to how like media literacy actually sort of plays into like how we can fight injustice? Absolutely. One of the things that you first notice when you start working in the legal system, as I have for the last 15 years, is how different what happens there every day is from what's supposed to happen there. And the extraordinary gap between like the values that are written on our marble monuments and our constitutional scrolls and the way that poor people are treated every single day in courtrooms all over the country and the level of barbarity and cruelty, but also the level of profit that's being made off of people. It's, it's extraordinary. And I think that one of the reasons that, that this gap between our ideals and the reality of people's lives and what's happening to their bodies and to their families and children and is allowed to persist is the lack of knowledge that many people in society have about what's happening. And I think the media plays a huge role in deceiving people, not only about what, you know, is going on with things like police and jails and prosecutors and judges, et cetera, but deceiving people about what's possible, what could Mm. be different about what's happening. And so the media constrains our focus on a very narrow range of harms committed by some people, right? It doesn't focus on harms committed by other people. Um, and then it, it constrains our imagination about how a society can deal with those harms. And I think those two things have been really stunning to me the more I've, I've probed into how the media operates over the last three years. I love that you say that we feel constrained because I think that even with a lot of people who have good intentions and who, you know, believe in justice, as soon as you're like, well, why don't we break down the system and start again? They're like, oh, we couldn't possibly. So like, what's your argument against that? Well, I don't think anyone should be happy with how our current legal system looks. Let me just say, we spend more money on police, prosecutors, and prisons than any society in the recorded history of the modern world. Wow. And we're now putting human beings in cages at rates that are about six times our own historical average from like the late 1700s to like the late 20th century. We're, we're like, we've like, we've, we've gone up like 600% since like 1980. And it was really steady prior to that. It's not like everyone in the US got evil all of a sudden in the 1980s. It was that our policies changed. And so now we're, we're, we're jailing people you know, at five to 10 times the rate of other countries right now. And we're putting black people in cages at a rate of six times out of South Africa at the height of apartheid. So nobody should be happy with that because guess what? We still have a society with lots of violence. It's not like uh, all of this incarceration has magically made us the safest society in world history. And I think one of the things that a lot of people forget is that the things that cause people to hurt each other, the things that cause violent crime, sexual assault, domestic violence, murder, it's, there's huge structural features of our society, like poverty, like lack of access to adequate mental health care and, and health care generally, like lack of connection to other people, lack of, of programs for young people to get involved in their communities, toxic masculinity, like white supremacy. These are the things that actually, when you, when you study, as many scientists and social scientists have, 
for the last 50 years across many countries. These are the things that lead to huge shifts in whether societies are more or less violent. Not like, you know, what is the policy of some prosecutor in San Francisco or is the prison sentence for drug possession seven years or three years? You know, mm. these are not the things that actually determine what levels of violence a society has. But you would you would not not know that from following the media. The media is obsessed with these little tiny policy tweaks. And it's it's all honestly a huge distraction from the real issues, which is the extraordinary levels of inequality and deprivation and loneliness and isolation and poverty in our society the lack of access to systems of care. Those are the real things that the people who benefit from our, our society's choices, the people who own things, for example, and then the police unions and the multi-billion dollar companies that profit off of mass incarceration, they don't want us talking about those deeper issues. They want us constantly focused on these little tweaks that are gonna be really profitable for them and distracting to the rest of us. Turtles All the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on Max. NPR named the novel a, quote, sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Aza Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness, both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max. Is it come down to what we've normalized? Like the media, it, it would it would be seen as completely radical to start reporting on other stuff. Like I remember, you know, you look back on like you were saying it, it just until the 80s when all of a sudden everything went up sixfold. But people, I think you had to slowly get used to that to not realize that this is all very modern. Like people are like, we've always had this. You know what I mean? Because the media has presented it as something that's always been that way or that it's necessary versus understanding from media literacy that this is actually pretty recent. Absolutely. I mean, when you talk to people from other countries about just things that we take for granted here, you know, for example, the U.S. and the Philippines are the only two countries in the world that have a for-profit money bail system, which means that there are for-profit companies deciding who goes free with their families to their churches, schools, jobs, communities uh, when they're charged with a crime, presumed innocent, and who stays in a cage. And there's 500,000 people right now, as you and I are talking, who are in jail cells, accused of a crime but not convicted, and the vast majority of them are only there because their families don't have enough cash to pay a for-profit company. That system is only allowed in two countries. So it's not like 
it's absolutely necessary for human survival to have this system. I mean, almost every country in the world has figured out a way to not have that. And there's hundreds of thousands of people that are jailed in this country every year just because they owe debt. And that doesn't happen in most other countries. So uh, there's, there's all of these things that we're doing that are just policy choices. And a lot of people are benefiting from them. And, and as a result, it's become utterly normalized, like you suggest. We don't even think about it. And, and the media coverage plays a really strong role in this, right? Because you, you very rarely will read in the news media about a crime wave of tax evasion or a crime wave of wage theft. Even though <laughs> wage theft costs about five times all other property crime combined in the country. And tax evasion is about 60 times all other property crime combined. Like all robbery, burglary, shoplifting. Like we're talking about a trillion dollars a year in tax evasion. And yet you don't, you don't hear about it as like a daily crime. And so it's just totally normal in our society for wealthy people to not pay their taxes. The same is true of, of all kinds of white collar crime, you know, securities fraud and other forms of sort of white collar fraud are about $830 billion a year. And yet you don't hear like emergency hearings every day uh, in local government or the Congress, you know, you don't, the news broadcast doesn't, begin every night. You know, the same is true with like um, building code violations or water pollution or air pollution. I mean, there's, there's people and companies every single day intentionally violating water and air pollution laws. And those crimes kill way more people than... So if you look at air pollution alone, 100,000 deaths in the US every year. So that's four to five times all murder combined. And yet, there's no local news segment every night featuring like the worst air polluter of the day. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know, there, there's no segment on the local news, which is like bad landlord of the day covering like all the slumlords that are doing illegal evictions. That would be amazing. We need to normalize this in the media. And I think what the media covers every day has a significant effect on what we're afraid of. And if the news media, which is fed these stories by PR officials and police departments, you know, which spend billions of dollars on public relations every single year, feeding the news media these stories every day, and if, if they fed us different stories, we'd have different things we were afraid of and different things we were treating urgently. And it, it's, it's not quite as simple as that, but, but it largely is. You know, and, and what the, the news media obsesses over shapes to a significant effect, like, what we think of as a problem in our society and what we actually tolerate, even though it, it could cut, be causing much more harm. If you had a magic wand and you could make as many policy changes as you wanted, what what would your system look like? <laughs> well, I think there's so many, it's such a hard, difficult question. And I don't purport to, I'm just a civil rights lawyer who sues a lot of <laughs> judges and police and prosecutors. And I, I sometimes, you know, make comments on Twitter. But I don't purport to be like having any and all answers. So I'll just give you my opinion. But, you know, it's the biased opinion of someone who works in the legal system on behalf of people who 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 don't have a lot of money. But mm -hmm. I think it would be fairly easy to shift significant parts of the budgets that we're currently spending on things like bombs and fighter jet programs and police surveillance and prisons, et cetera. And, and also just in general to invest more in universal access to healthcare. 
in safe places for people to live. And one of the most um, uncontroversial, like social science, empirical research facts is that investments in early childhood education produce huge orders of, re- of magnitude return on your investment later in life. They reduce harm and violence. They increase community engagement. They increase future earnings. They increase, they have sort of economic effects. So I think a lot of these things are actually like completely no brainers if you actually just look at the evidence. So massive investments in systems of care that people need. I would invest really significantly, not just in early childhood education and housing and healthcare, but also in things like um, the arts, after school programs, um, theater, music, art, dance, athletics for kids, um, the kinds of things that build relationships and connections and a sense of joy and play and purpose in people's lives. And those are the things that people look forward to every day, the things mm-hmm. that that create connections with each other and the things that build strong communities that don't hurt each other. Uh, these are like really no brainers when you look at the evidence. And it's actually kind of remarkable that our society has divested so much from some of these things and instead chosen to invest in systems of punishment. Because I think that's a a fundamental misunderstanding of of human behavior. I don't think when people are hurting each other, they're they're doing a rational calculus usually about like, well, what are the odds I'm gonna get caught for this, mm-hmm. you know, sexual offense and when someone abuses their romantic partner, I don't think they're 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 thinking about things like that. I think the 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 things that lead to harm, and keep in mind, the vast majority of violent crime in our society is not committed by strangers. It's right. violent and sexual crime and harm is committed by people that we know and many times people that we love. And so these are complex problems that like more investment in police and prisons just like is not really designed to solve. We need to be building much different ways of relating to each other. And for people that are at risk of harm, building places they can go and seek refuge to prevent that harm, to get out of bad situations, to change the the dynamics of their lives. And many people stay in dangerous and abusive situations because they literally can't afford to leave. Mm -hmm. Right. These are the things that cause harm. So if I were were in charge of everything for a day, which if, if you have any any influence over this, I encourage you to like, let's, <laughs> let's figure out how to get you that wand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I would significantly reduce right away the budgets of these carceral bureaucracies that are like so profitable, but like so ineffective. And I would invest in things that we know work. I mean, can you speak to how punishment isn't a deterrent? Yeah, I mean, this is something that not only is it like very, very well established, one of the most well established facts in the entire criminology discourse with, you know, 50, 60, 70 years of rigorous studies is that the more harsh punishments do not serve, they do not have a deterrent effect on people. We know that. But it's also intuitive, right? And I've seen it in my own experience. My clients who are arrested for possessing a substance that's on a list of substances the government says they can't possess, these are not people that are that are deterred 
by the idea of being arrested and punished for it. They're, they're, they're seeking to possess and ingest that substance because of like a medical need that they, that they have or a desire that they have to use that substance. And the people that I know that get involved in other kinds of crime are not like even aware most of the time of the punishments that they're going to face, let alone motivated by them. That they're the most of this crime and harm is happening because of social factors that are just, uh, and even if punishment were a deterrent, that doesn't mean it's the best way of right. preventing these kinds of harms, right? So I do think it's possible that for some types of, of white collar crime, punishment can be a deterrent because there's a lot of crime that's financial crime that, that companies and other wealthy individuals are are literally doing calculations like, what are the odds of me getting caught? What's the fine going to be? What's the punishment going to be? I still don't know that like the the idea of after the fact punishment is the best way of creating a society where all human beings like participate and 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 interact with each other in a loving and kind and flourishing way. Like I think there are other ways to motivate behavior other than punishment. I've seen many of the best teachers, for example, in their classrooms have extraordinary success by moving away from models of like punishment to get students to do things. And if you motivate people through genuine excitement and interest and curiosity and partnership and solidarity, like that's like a, a different way of achieving, you know, behavior that promotes uh, safety and well-being and success. And so I think punishment is problematic on like a number of different levels, including that it doesn't work, but also that like morally speaking, I don't think it's it's the it's the sort of best and and most appropriate way of treating other people. Mm -hmm. And how have you seen like tides shift or not shift since like this idea of defunding the police has gone more like mainstream? mainstream? You know, because I feel like so many people have have wanted that and then you just increasing police budgets anyway. So how, like what direction are we headed? Are we just headed in the wrong direction or do you see more people fighting back? Like what do you think there will be progress? I think we're at a very dangerous moment. Uh, I think that we are on the verge of ecological collapse around the world, which could set off not only horrific weather events, but mass mi migration of hundreds of millions of people, which of course is going to set off a really dangerous wave of far right totalitarian attempts to block migrants from, from, you know, coming mm -hmm. certain places. Right. And, uh, a lot of that obviously is going to be heavily based on the color of people's skin and their ethnic and religious background, et cetera. I think that's going to pose a really significant threat domestically, uh, more and more. I think we're facing the rise of far right totalitarian movements anyway. So I don't think anything is set in stone. I think we have some time to organize together and to prevent that, but I'm very, very scared. And in terms of the defund stuff, I think the defund idea was extremely powerful, but also I think pretty widely and intentionally misunderstood and manipulated. E even if, even if, you know, you, you're not to the point where you think our society can or should get rid of police and prisons altogether. I think 
any reasonable person who spends even the slightest amount of time actually looking through a police budget will be appalled. Mm -hmm. The fraud is astronomical. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars in just straight up overtime fraud, sick leave fraud. I don't know if you followed the scandal at Rikers where they had thousands of guards at Rikers in New York City last year who were found to have been committing fraud on a massive scale, just like faking being sick and just collecting money by staying home. Mm. The, the, the kind, overtime fraud has been found in virtually every single auditor investigation of every single police department around the country. And then there's extraordinary sums of money being spent on a wide range of ridiculous military gadgets for police and weapons and training programs that are, it would be comical if they weren't so dangerous. So the idea that police budgets can't be reduced a little bit without actually even affecting anything is ridiculous. Like there, it's a extraordinary source of fraud, waste and abuse. And I think everyone would agree with that if they just had a little bit of a better sense of what the police are doing with all this money, but no one does. And in fact, I've been talking to a lot of city council people across the country, county board of supervisors, people who, who literally say, we can't even get straight answers from the police about what they're spending their money on. They won't tell us. It's not a democratic institution. And they've been able to secure these budgets basically through the sheer political force of threatening people. Like anyone who even starts talking about auditing them or checking into their budgets or reducing them a little bit gets the full fury and has to has to prepare to be challenged in a primary, has to be prepared to be unseated, has to be prepared mm -hmm. for political action committees worth millions of dollars to run against them, right? It's, it's very scary. And so a lot of these council people contact me and they're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I think I have to just support this budget request because like they won't give me the answers and they're going to come after me if I don't and, and I don't have enough allies. It's a really scary time, but I think there's more and more people willing to fight back. And there's more and more people, I think, after 2020 who realize that something is really wrong here, something systemic, something that involves a lot of people profiting. And I think the more time and energy we can spend educating people about this, I feel like we have some chance in the next few years of reducing the extent to which police departments are spending extraordinary amounts of money on, on things that don't keep us safe at all. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, and let me tell you, you do, head over to patreon.com slash justbetweenus. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad-free. You can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. Okay, that's it. Tatala Titu! Tatala Titu! When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.